on the back I carry my office for whatever I'm going to say. It's the food. And the second line's really important. It's, it's been the food all along. You know, and these people, I've been overweight all my life, I've had high blood pressure. It's been the food all along, you know. And, Hello and welcome to the Plan Prescription Podcast. This podcast is all about helping you live a longer, happier, and healthier life. We will be featuring conversations with great minds to inspire you to reach your ultimate potential. My name is Muzammil Ahmed. I'm a medical student with a master's in psychology, certification in nutrition, and a bachelor's in business. And my name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student with a bachelor of science in health and fitness physiology, and I'm also a plant-fueled Muay Thai fighter. We are both plant-based lifestyle advocates who are passionate about spreading positivity, optimizing health, and promoting sustainability. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are honored to bring you Dr. Michael Clapper. Dr. Clapper is a strong proponent of utilizing a whole food, plant-based diet, and balanced lifestyle to help patients achieve optimal health and truly heal disease instead of just treating the symptoms. Dr. Clapper graduated from the University of Illinois College of Medicine in 1972 and has training and experience in surgery, anesthesiology, orthopedics, obstetrics, and acute care medicine. From 2009 through 2018, he was on staff at the True North Health Center, a nutrition-based medical clinic in Santa Rosa, California, specializing in therapeutic fasting and health improvement through a whole food, plant-based diet. Over the past 40 years, Dr. Clapper has developed a strong reputation as a gifted clinician, internationally recognized teacher, and is a sought-after speaker on plant-based clinical nutrition and integrative medicine. He has authored numerous scientific articles, produces educational videos and webinars, and has contributed to health documentaries. He's passionate about educating healthcare professionals, physicians, and especially medical students. As we both know from personal experience, nutrition is not taught extensively in medical school curriculums, and since retiring from clinical practice, Dr. Clapper has devoted his time to solving this problem. He helped form the Moving Medicine Forward Initiative, and in what he considers the most important work of his career, Dr. Clapper lectures at medical schools teaching students how to use plant-predominant nutrition and lifestyle to heal their patients. It was amazing to share this conversation with him and to help further the nutrition knowledge of our medical student peers. We're sure you will love the energy and enthusiasm of Dr. Clapper as much as we did. Please share this episode with any healthcare professionals in your lives who may need to hear this message. And also, if you haven't already done so, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Hello, Dr. Clapper. We're super excited to welcome you to our podcast today. Um, Could you just start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and perhaps starting by telling us your intro, your journey into medicine? Oh, my. Uh, Well, I'm a classically trained Western physician. I graduated from the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago way back in 1972. Uh, And for the first 10 years of my uh, career, I did uh, blood and guts medicine, emergency rooms, operating rooms. I took additional training in surgery, anesthesiology, uh, and obstetrics at the University of California, San Francisco. Worked on Native American Indian reservations, uh, lots of acute care medicine. But uh, in 1981, uh, about nine years after I graduated, a number of events happened uh, from what I saw in the operating room and other places uh, that uh, strongly motivated me to change to a a whole food plant-based diet. My dad was showing signs of clogged arteries. Uh, I was on the cardiovascular anesthesia service and day after day, watching patients, uh, uh, I'm putting people to sleep and watching surgeons open their chest and open their coronary arteries and remove this yellow greasy gut from uh, their artery wall 
animals, which I knew was largely the, the fat of the animals these people were eating. As I mentioned, my dad was already showing uh, uh, cold legs and angina, and I knew I had the, uh, the genes for that disease. And if I didn't change my diet, uh, it's going to be me laying on that table with that striker saw going up my chest. I certainly didn't want that to happen. Uh, and there were already studies in the medical journal showing that you can melt this stuff away with a whole food plant-based diet. Uh, so I so I adopted. Uh, it wasn't that uh, difficult to do oatmeal and uh, and fruit for breakfast, lunches and dinners, uh, big colorful salads and hearty vegetable soups and uh, uh, vegetable stir fries and Indian curries and Mexican chilies. It was a, it was a wonderful, tasty cuisine. Well, my body just loved it. Uh, within 12 weeks, a, a, a what a 10 kilogram uh, spare tire of fat melted off my belly. My high blood pressure went to normal. My high cholesterol went to normal. I felt great waking up in a nice, lean, light body every day. And uh, at that point, in my third year of residency in anesthesia, I knew I didn't want to be an anesthesiologist anymore and uh, spend my time. Uh, putting people to sleep, and we had to go back to general practice and help them wake up. And uh, so I did, much to my parents' dismay. I left the residency, went back to general practice, and started doing nutrition-based uh, medicine. I found someone in uh, the area that could give plant-based cooking classes. I would refer my uh, overweight, diabetic, hypertensive patients to them. And those who could adopt the plant-based diet, I saw the same wonderful changes happen to them within weeks. Uh, the obesity starts to melt away, and the arteries open up, and the high blood pressure comes down, and the joints stop hurting, and the psoriatic skin starts to clear up, and the migraine headaches get better, and the asthmatic lungs stop wheezing so much, and they turn into normal, healthy people who don't need medications. You can stop their insulins and stop their hypertensive medication properly done. And uh, I'm the happiest doctor I know. My, my patients get healthy right before my eyes. It's a, uh, seriously, when I lecture the med students, I say, you know, what, as a healer, as a physician, what greater gift could you want uh, for your patients than to restore them to health? So they don't need you. I tell my patients I want to see you in two places and two places only. That's in the natural food store buying your tofu and out on the bicycle path where I'll wave to you as we pass each other. That's about the only place I want to see you. Go live your life. And uh, if you break your arm, call me. If you cut yourself, call me. I'll fix you up. But other than that, uh, it's the food. It's the lifestyle. It's the happiness in your life. That's really what life is about. We're not here to suffer or be medical patients. So um, that was 1981. I've been a, a lifestyle uh, based physician ever since. I've been an ethical vegan ever since. There's no eating animals. There's no, it's just not, not an issue any longer, no matter what we do to them and what that's doing to this planet. Uh, so, you know, that's not an issue, but the, but we're plant-eating creatures. Uh, we, we evolved through the simian line of Korea, the ape line, and uh, we, we've got fingers on our hands instead of claws. We've got big, long digestive tracts for digesting fiber. We've got basically the same digestive system that our gorilla and bonobo cousins have, uh, and they're up in the trees eating leaves and fruits. And if we eat a whole food plant-based diet, we pass these big soft stools, our blood pressure comes down, and we turn into normal, healthy beings. And 
And anything that deviates from that whole food plant-based diet, the meat, the dairy, the oils, the sugars, spawn diseases, which we can talk about. But it's, it's not that difficult to understand. If you put diesel fuel into a gasoline-burning engine, it's going to start running rough and clog your spark plugs and follow your gas line and all that. Uh, the same thing with the standard Western diet based on meats and dairy oils. We're not carnivorous apes. Uh, so uh, I help people get back to our... Our, our naturally designed diet here, and these diseases go away, and uh, we can talk about it. It's a wonderful thing to see, uh, but that's a long answer to uh, how I got to be sitting in front of this microphone today talking to you about plant-based diets. I love that. I actually love your story because um, usually people pick a specialty for whatever reason and they can go into it and stick to it, but you went into general practice, and then I, I think you, I don't want to like take that away from you because you tell it so much better, but you went into general practice and then you weren't happy that people weren't getting better. So you went into anesthesiology, but then once you realize you can help people get better, you realize that general practice might be the best place for, to do it. So could you elaborate that more? And there's another thing I love about your story is that moment that clicked for you when you, during the surgery, when you were like, oh my God, that fat in that artery like came from animal fat. Like, can you just elaborate both of the, those things more? Because I, I just love your story. Sure. Um, you know, like all of you, you are students of medicine. We all have that calling. We're, big, we're the folks who want to make things better. We want people to be okay. You know, we, whatever scene we walk into, whether it's a kid fall off his bike or a hurt animal or a clogged upstream, we want things to be okay and, and, and happy. Uh, and um, medicine certainly lends itself to that. Uh, but it's frustrating, and it's frustrating the way medicine is practiced today. You talk to the cardiologist and the internist and the gastroenterologist, they're, they're not happy people. Uh, why? Because their patients ask them, all my patients, they're all getting fatter and sicker, they all need stents, they all need, they need statins and steroids, and, and they're all dying early. And this is what Western medicine has become. And I hear this, my heart goes out to him, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, that's right, doctor. You don't, you don't talk to him about what they're eating. You'll keep letting them eat the meat and the dairy and the oils and sugars and all this stuff. That's exactly what you're going to see. They're going to get fatter and more clogged up and spawn all these nasty inflammatory and malignant diseases. That's right. It's the food. Uh, is, and, uh, and yet we in the West, we practice medicine like what our patients are eating has no effect on these diseases. It's stunning. We learn in physiology class within minutes of eating anything, molecules of that food are flowing through every cell in your body where your DNA lies unfolded and the food molecules wash over your cells and they play your DNA like a piano. They turn genes on, they turn genes off, they induce enzymes, they shut enzymes down. Every meal changes us. And meal after meal, egg McMuffin after, after double cheeseburger, after buffalo wings, after pepperoni pizzas, after you know, the steady stream of, of cooked animal muscle and fried vegetable oils and concentrated sugars and uh, processing molecules of all types. 
there's this steady stream of toxins as the months go by and the years go by. We're shocked. Oh, the, the gut got leaky and now you've got lupus. Gee, how did that happen? You know, and uh, uh, gee, the gut spawned some nasty bacteria on the gut wall. Now the gut's inflamed. Well, you've got Crohn's disease. You've got colitis. We don't understand. It's an autoimmune disease of unknown etiology. Well, take them, shake them up. <laughs> it's not. It's the food they're eating. Well, they've been steering out the intestine three times a day for the past 20 years. And, uh, and, and yet, oh, that we, don't, we, we treat the patient's diet like in the Harry Potter movies, the Voldemort, the uh, Archvillain, the name that must not be spoken. Ooh, don't ask. Don't ask about the patient diet. We're Canadians. We're American. We can eat whatever we want. Yeah, but your body's got something to say about that. Your arteries got something to say about that. Your breast tissue, your prostate gland, your colon wall got something to say about the food you're putting down there. And that's where these diseases are coming from. And yes, there's a genetic component. Yes, there's a lifestyle component. But the vast majority, the by far the greatest influence of uh, whether you're going to be healthy or diseased um, is, uh, well, uh, um, the plaque I carry in my office for everyone to see, it's the food. And the second line is really important. It's, it's been the food all along. You know, and these people, I've been overweight all my life, I've had high blood pressure. It's been the food all along, you know. And, and you get folks on, on a natural, whole food, plant-based diet, and the vast majority of diseases go away. And, uh, you know, when you stop hitting yourself in the head with a hammer, the headaches go away, you know. What a miracle, you know, and, uh, and the same thing with the diet. Uh, rice and beans and greens and fruits and veggies don't damage your arteries. They don't clog up your insulin receptors. They don't make your gut leaky. But the fried meats and the oils and the dairy and the sugars and the polysorbate 80 and all these uh, uh, processing chemicals, they, they will uh, cause dysfunction and damage on a lot of molecular levels. And we can't pretend this doesn't happen any longer. So for, it's embarrassing. You know, we're, we're medical scientists. You know, we can spot a genetic mismatch on gene A21 on chromosome 13 with precision. But the thought that pepperoni peaches and cheeseburgers might be clogging up our patients' arteries, this is too abstruse for, a, uh, for our colleagues to, to, to comprehend. And it's sad because that's where the majority of our money and our time and our energy is going. Uh, and all these specialists are, are in their cubicles. And the internist sees the high blood pressure, and the cardiologist sees the clogged arteries, and the gastroenterologist sees the colitis, and the rheumatologist sees the sore joints, and the dermatologist sees the psoriasis. They're all looking at the same disease. It's what their patients are eating. And, and oh, they don't want to let that open that box. Why? We don't know anything about nutrition. We're not taught anything about it. And... They don't respect it as a science. I've never been any study show it makes any difference. I let my patient eat whatever they want. And, and so the diseases continue to persist. And finally, they're eating the same stuff themselves. They're eating the burgers and the pizzas in the, in the hospital cafeteria. And when you get out and practice and you're making some money, you buy your steaks and your lobster. And, uh, and oh, you don't want to tell your patients don't eat that. Uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's the good life. 
But the reality is uh, having a big old stroke or developing a colon cancer, that good life comes to a screeching halt at that point from what you've conjured up in your body. So uh, a fine kettle of tofu we've got ourselves in here uh, because it's, you know, it's our right. You know, we treat food like a recreational, our tongue is a recreational organ. And we just bathe this constant flow of salt and sugar and fat uh, and the food companies have been artistic in, in learning how to uh, uh, seduce our tongues to keep that, that toxic mix going. And meanwhile, we, you and I, uh, we have lots of diseases to treat as a result. And, uh, but, it, but the cure, and, and most of them are reversible, starts with, with the food. Get them on a whole food, plant-based diet and do the other things you need. And... Uh, and become a happy doctor as your patients get healthy. So, uh, so what was the point where you decided to switch to a plant-based diet yourself? Uh, I'm sorry, what point did I decide? To switch to a plant-based diet yourself. To go to a plant-based diet myself? <laughs> it was 1981. Uh, you really want to know about my life? Um, it was 1981. I was a, uh, going to my third year residency, uh, uh, third year residency in anesthesiology at Vancouver General Hospital in Vancouver, BC. Well, in BC, not too far from that. And um, and again, I'm on the cardiovascular anesthesia service, and I'm, and one day I'm watching a surgeon pull out a particularly rubbery, slithery piece of. of clogging material from the artery. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, that stuff looks like chicken fat. My mother used to make, make chicken, uh, chicken soup. And uh, the little voice on my shoulder said, you know, there's a good reason why it looks like chicken fat, doctor. It is chicken fat and cow fat and pig fat. And, you know, they've done tracer studies. You can see a saturated fat in the animals winding up in the plants. Uh, but along the way, there was a second uh, force that was also impinging upon my awareness. Uh, and that was, I, I spent my uh, early years, uh, every summer, up on my uncle's dairy farm in northern Wisconsin. I'd been milking cows since I was eight and driving tractors since I was ten. Uh, and, and I know the cruelty involved in putting meat on the table. I chopped the heads off chickens. I killed the fish that we caught. I saw the... Uh, the, the old cows and bulls shot in the head by the by the butcher would come up. Now, there's no way to get meat on the table without there being violence. And I would I would hear the cows locked in the stanchion after giving birth to a calf who've had their their calves taken away. So my so my uncle would take the milk, and that the cow would bellow hour after hour, day after day, for days would go on crying for her infant in the veal pen 10 yards down in, in the barn there. And I could, I could still hear those cries to this day. And I realized how cruel uh, all, all meat production is, all dairying uh, is all cruel. And in my fourth year, uh, of medical school, I spent my, uh, my uh, Saturday nights in the trauma unit at Big Bad Old Cook County Hospital in Chicago. And every Saturday night, I'd see the worst violence that people could inflict on each other. I, I would be shaking by Sunday morning. And I vowed to get the, uh, get the violence out of my own life. If I couldn't get it out of the world, at least get it out of my own life. So I began studying the, the life of the Indian saints and reading Mahatma Gandhi and Satyananda and the various Indian saints there about living a life of nonviolence. 
So where does this come into the, uh, back to the farm animals? One night in Vancouver, I'm out for dinner uh, with a, another resident, and I'm pontificating about living a life of nonviolence while I'm polishing off a porterhouse steak at the local cake and cleaver. And my friend John looks at me with great compassion and says, well, that's, that's all very nice what you're saying, Michael, but if you want to get the violence out of your life, you might start with uh, that piece of meat on your plate because in satisfying your desire for the taste of flesh in your mouth, you are paying for the death of the animal and for the next one in line at the slaughterhouse. Well, as soon as he said that, oh, all the old rationalizations flooded into my head. Uh, well, the animal's dead already, and that's what they raised them for. All that. But before I could get a word out of my lips, that little voice on my shoulder said, you know, he's right. He's right. Because I knew on my I saw the violence. And, I, and, and like, like everybody else who eats meat, we put that curtain down in our heart and in our heads. We, I know what it's like to sleep that sleep and not realize what that chicken breast really is, that piece of steak really is, and where it came from and the cost. But you'll never see me wagging my finger at people because I, cause for 34 years, I, I was asleep just like that. And, and it takes something to wake us up. But between what I was seeing in the operating room and what I knew to be true in the restaurant that night, when I, when I went up to pay for the meal, I felt complicit in a crime. And I said, I can't do this anymore. And the animals are always looking. And uh, so between those two forces, uh, there was no... Uh, no choice. I stopped eating meat. And uh, as I said, my body responded beautifully. And if you want to know the full truth of it, uh, a few weeks later, I'm at home in Vancouver. Uh, and uh, I was raised in uh, a Jewish household after World War II. And uh, the stories of the Holocaust and the concentration camps were rattling around my head since childhood. And I remember seeing the pictures of the lampshades made out of the skins of the Jews. And, um, well, I was alone in my apartment. And I looked down at my leather shoes and I looked at my leather belt. And it started, it became, felt ghoulish to me. I would realize I, I, that was the same with the skin of these poor animals. So I took a shovel, I went in the backyard, I dug a hole, and I put my leather shoes and my leather belt, my little wallet in there, and I filled it while I buried my leather. Uh, and I stepped back from the hole, I apologized to the animals. If you don't know, you don't know, but once you know, you have an application. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of it. But the era of hemp wallets and non-leather belts and all that began in my life. Uh, and that was the end of it. Until a few weeks later, I was mentioning what had happened to me on, to a friend of mine, and she said, oh, you've become a vegan. I had never heard the word. Uh, so, okay, I guess I'm a vegan, you know, but it sure feels better. Uh, I feel better in my life, and I, when I put my head down on the pillow at night. I know I haven't knowingly caused you know, harm or death to, to these innocent animals. So that was 1981, 39 years ago now. And uh, one of the best decisions I ever made, I'll tell you. I haven't looked back. That's so That's amazing. You're, I love how you're such, you articulate things so well. And I love that you're not just such a passionate advocate for the plant-based nutrition, but the, the entire lifestyle and compassionate living because it's, it's all connected. And just like you say, like, like a lot of vegans or people that identify as vegans nowadays, like we might go plant-based for the benefits, but once the blinders are off and we can see the, the cruelty in the world, like it's hard, hard to ignore that. So 
thank you for sharing so openly. Yeah, um, Clapper, would you be open to sharing how old you are? Because you've been vegan so long and I feel like majority of our listeners don't know many vegans who have been vegan for that long. Hi, I'm 108. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm 72 years old. I'm looking at 73 uh, in the middle of July. I'm a astrological cancer. You're the healthiest 72-year-old <laughs> I know. We can just feel the energy in your voice. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I pedaled, you know, 20 miles on my bike uh, most mornings and do Amazing. my yoga. My wife's a yoga teacher and trying to keep my spine as, as supple as I can. I'm on no medications. I don't have any aches or pains. I'm just, I feel like I did when I was 35 or 40. I don't, I don't feel much different. Uh, looks a little different in the mirror there, but uh, a few more gray hairs. <laughs> you but look I, great. I feel fine. <laughs> Yeah, I feel fine. Dr. Clapper, I would, I would love to take it back a little bit. Um, you mentioned when you started first practicing lifestyle medicine with your patients. Can you tell us what it was like when you first, I think I've heard you tell this story before, but when you first told your patient to stop their medications and what this whole experience was like for you? Oh, yeah, it was absolutely remarkable. Um, so I was a classically trained Western doctor. Anesthesia, you know, I'm injecting phenethyl and succinylcholine into people every day. I'm doing Western medicine, uh, but suddenly that was just not the place I was, I was going to put the rest of my career. So I find myself back in my general practice office, uh, and I had left general practice to go into anesthesia out of frustration because my patients, like every other primary care doc, I get more obese and their diabetes is worse, my blood pressure is worse. And I didn't know what to tell them. You know, I just, I'll lose some weight, Joe. Uh, let me raise your metformin dosage here. Come back in a month. And that's a dismal kind of medicine to practice. And it's the kind of medicine most of our colleagues are practicing because they don't know any better. And I was one of them. That's why I left to go to anesthesia. Well, now I, here I am back in my general practice office, but I'm a different doc now because I just saw something in my own body, for sure. I'm reading in the literature, Dr. McDougall, other folks are getting these remarkable responses uh, with whole food plant-based diets. So uh, I began getting my patients on this kind of diet. Uh, and it's not a diet, it's just a, it's a way of eating. Uh, diet means your daily fare, your daily intake. And, uh, and again, it's soups and salads and greens and all these wonderful plant-based meals. Well, guess what? The same wonderful changes started happening in their body. Their, uh, their obesity starts melting away. And, uh, but some interesting physiology appears. Uh, their arteries do open up. All that high salt diet makes your arteries stiffer and retain fluid. Well, without all that fast food and high sodium meals, um, the, uh, the sodium leaves the artery walls. They get more compliant. There's less um, retention of fluid. Blood pressures come down. Well, I've got patients on diuretics and beta blockers and, uh, and ACE inhibitors, and I'm starting to getting a call. The dog, I'm standing up, I'm getting lightheaded, boy. And, uh, and one of my patients called me and said, I passed out last night on the way to the bathroom. And he was, oh, I had already reduced his medication. Uh, and finally, he was on uh, uh, metaprolol. Uh, and there was a, we just have my metaprolol, but I, I stopped his other medication. So finally I said those fateful words I had never said in my career and one that I was told you never say. 
stop your blood pressure medication. You no longer have high blood pressure. You no longer have the disease. And this one's going to stand up and pass out. He's going to break his face or you know, a big scalp laceration or worse. Um, stop your medication. The man no longer has the disease. Well, as you probably are still learning, and I learned, the hypertension medication, this is lifetime medication. They will take these pills the rest of their life. Nobody gets off high blood pressure pills. Well, this man doesn't need them. In fact, it's contraindicated in this man. He's got pressure 110 over 70. What do I have him on beta blockers and, uh, and ARB inhibitors for? And uh, so I said, stop your meds. Well, I thought there was going to be a puff of smoke and the ghost of my internal medicine professor would be standing there with folded arm. What did you say? Stop his hypertensive medication. Hand in your stethoscope. Hang up your white coat. You're no longer a doctor. You transgressed the sacred rules we have. But at that point, the edifice shattered. These folks really, they don't understand what real healing is. This man's now a healthy man without the disease of high blood pressure. He does not need these medications. And, and I began to get more and more confident about stopping medications for blood pressure. Well, it didn't take long before this same scenario got acted out with my patient with type 2 diabetes. And you know, when their insulin receptors were all clogged up with animal fat and vegetable oils or way too much sugar in their blood, they don't uh, process uh, glucose and other sugars well at all. Well, guess what? Uh, they got a whole food plant-based diet. They start losing weight. They're walking every day. Their insulin receptors open up, and their blood sugars start going down, down, down. Uh, and meanwhile, I've got them on you know, 10, 20 units of insulin, and they're waking up with blood sugars of 50. And so I cut your insulin in half, cut it in half again, cut it in half again. Till finally, I said those faithful words, stop your insulin, man. You know, it's dangerous. You'd be taking this. They're going to have serious hypoglycemic reactions here. Uh, and, uh, and then so they're now they're just left on metformin. And came that fateful day when I said, stop your metformin. You've got to be waking up with blood sugars of 70. Oh, that would be what, a three point something for you guys, uh, millimoles in the, in the low fours. Uh, and... Uh, the man no longer has type 2 diabetes, no longer insulin resistant. And so, uh, and again, I was waiting for the puff of smoke uh, for, you know, to stop his insulin. Yes, you can stop it. And it made me look at the entire Western paradigm where we just pile on drug after drug, Medicaid to control this effect and that side effect. And, and these people are not suffering from metaprolol deficiencies. They were suffering from excesses of fat and salt and sugar in their diet. Uh, and, uh, and that's where the focus needs to be. It's disingenuous. It's, it's unethical to withhold this information from patients and to continue keeping, keeping them trapped in, in, the, uh, uh, in that paradigm. Um, you know, I'm going to the medical schools, talking to the medical students as I am with you before what I, what I call pharmacosclerosis sets into these young people's brains. That the medication is the only treatment for these, for, these, uh, for these illnesses. The patient is sitting in front of you, overweight, diabetic, hypertensive, clogged up and inflamed from what he is freaking eating. Yeah, it's from what they're running through their bloodstream every four hours. Start there, doctor, to just go, well, let's see if we can lower his, still his LDL cholesterol as he's, loading in the pork chops and, and beef burgers and bacon. Gee, well, we got to poison your liver so you can't make it cholesterol. 
it's it's irrational. It'd be funny if it weren't so sad and so many people weren't injured by this. Uh, so so for the sake of all of us, for our patients, for our profession, uh, for for the animals, for the world, because a meat based diet is destroying the planet. Um, it, it's really time to to turn that page. No matter what meat eating was in the past of of our species, no matter what it was individually in our lives. That, that era is over. We are, we are plant-eating creatures. The message is flashing loud and clear. Uh, revert to your whole food plant-based diet and everything will get better. You'll get healthier. Uh, the uh, suffering will decrease on, on every level here. But it's not an easy sell. We like our burgers. We like, our, uh, like those hot dogs. And uh, we want to be free to eat what we want. And, uh, and there's social pressures. And they don't want to be that odd, strange, vegan in the corner there eating lettuce and raisins, and uh, there's a huge stigma. But meanwhile, look at who we become. Look at the runaway obesity and stroke incidents and uh, incidents of MIs and the cancers, and it's 99% from what we're eating. So, um, so it's up to your generation and, and mine to uh, help our patients you know, turn that page and, uh, and embrace this wonderful plant-based world and, and watch these diseases go away. And uh, we, we owe that to, to our patients. We owe this the truth of it. And, uh, for physicians, we should deal with the truth of things. And uh, so um, that's why we're having this conversation. Yeah, I love that. I love everything you said. And I love how you're going around medical schools in North America to educate medical students. Because uh, like you said, we're not taught nutrition, which is so unfortunate. I had to go outside of medical school to get my nutrition certification as we're barely taught anything. And there are so many things that are taught in medical school in relation to nutrition that are just not evidence-based. A professor would just come in and just give the personal opinion on nutrition without always having you know, sources to back that up. So I love what you're doing. We have a lot of questions that can potentially help medical students who might be listening to this as well as just general public who might be curious. So I know you talk about this a lot, so when you eat something like a burger or some an unhealthy meal, can you just break it down? What exactly goes through your bloodstream after that incident of having that unhealthy meal? Oh, it's stunning. Uh, you can you can see it. Uh, if someone um, well, if someone eats a healthy meal, if they eat a big salad and a bowl of vegetable soup and uh, some quinoa and some lentils and some. Uh, steamed kale and a, and a papaya for dessert. You eat a meal like that and you, you flush this wonderful assortment of phytonutrients through your tissues, lots of water, it's a high water content diet. But very importantly, uh, that's, that's about all that's in there. The, the, uh, the, the plasma, the serum after the blood clot stays nice and clear, it's free flowing. Uh, yay, normal human nutrition for a, uh, uh, for a uh, homo sapien body. But we revert to this bizarre flesh-based food fare uh, where it's uh, seared pieces of, of animal muscle or deep-fried animal muscle and refined sugars and, uh, and vegetable oils. Uh, an hour later, after a meal like, like you know, burgers, fries, and a shake or a big piece of pizza or two, um, you can see it. Uh, you draw blood and the red clot goes to the bottom and the liquid part of the blood, the serum, should be crystal clear floating on top of the, of the blood clot 
FU centrifuge. Oh, it's milky white. It looks, it looks like Elmer's glue. Not everybody shows it that optically densely, but there's a wave of fat that goes to your bloodstream. You have to eat a fatty meal. How can they not be? Where is it going to go? Uh, and during that time, the, the fat injures the artery walls, opening the, the gates to atherosclerotic plaque formation. Uh, the saturated fat pro-inflammatory, the fanning inflammatory reactions throughout the body. Uh, the fat flows through the abdominal fat stores there and sticks there, and people get more obese. The fat works its way into the liver and muscle cells, uh, cause insulin resistant, and uh, bumps the person down the road to type 2 diabetes. Uh, and, and the blood stays this way for five hours. And during this time, again, the arteries are injured, the insulin resistance is increasing, the diabetes, the obesity is increasing. And that would be bad enough. But when you given how people eat on this continent, uh, there's a, a bacon and eggs for breakfast and a cheeseburger for lunch and a chicken for dinner, meal after meal after meal. This stuff never clears out of the bloodstream. Uh, and I tell the patients, I tell the med students, you know, when you open the door of the waiting room of your office or in the emergency room or the surgical outpatient clinic, these people are sitting there with lipemic serum. Uh, you know, maybe the folks have been NP overnight, uh, not so much. But the majority of folks, their blood is running thick with fat and animal protein and salt and sugar. Uh, and, and we know each one of these has an adverse effect. And you add up the, the total uh, toxic effect. And uh, again, uh, we can't be shocked when all these degenerative diseases start showing up from, from autoimmune diseases to, uh, to malignancies. Uh, it's a toxic food stream. So uh, uh, if one was to try to undermine the health of a society, if you were a malignant outside force, you couldn't ask for a better way uh, than the, the Western fast food diet and load up the hospitals and have every 30 seconds on this continent, someone grabs their chest and falls over the myocardial infarction. Uh, boy, what, a, what an effective weapon uh, that, you know, that, that would be. But we're doing it to ourselves, which is the saddest part of all, of course, unnecessarily. You, that's so crazy to actually think that some people can't the smart make it. <laughs> the, word, the word homo sapien, sapient as an English word, means to, if you're sapient, you're wise. It means the wise one, wisdom, sapien. Talking about the most unwise thing you can think of. It's like the like crazy, get... I was just going to say, it's just what you were saying. It's the craziest thing. People can't make the connection between what we eat flows through our bloodstream and that can cause disease. And to just be so disassociated from that is insane when you think about it. Um <laughs> It really is. And, and again, our professors and our colleagues and the, uh, your medical school colleagues, they'll stand their arms folded. Well, maybe so, but show me 200 double blind placebo controlled studies with a thousand patients in each study. Um, that works with drug trials. You can, you can come up with a drug and come up with a reasonable placebo. Nobody knows what they're taking. The experimenters don't know what they're taking. And they're over a limited period. You can see a measurable effect. Nutrition doesn't work like that. Nutrition studies don't lend themselves. That people know what they're eating. You, know, you can't. Uh, you're either you know eating the you know the fried chicken or you're not. And the and to isolate a variable in nutrition, you people have to stay on the same dietary pattern 
year after year after year. Well, human beings don't do that. You can't do a study like that. Because the only way to tell the diet X or diet Y makes any difference is, is take a, a thousand people in each group, eat the same diet for 25 years, and you see who's still alive, who's had strokes, who's died. That's the study that needs to be done. And no one's going to do that study. There's no money in that study. And so, um, so you, nutrition studies have a different level of uh, credibility that you have to judge by. If people are interested in that, I would recommend your viewers uh, go Google the True Health Initiative, THI, Dr. David Katz's uh, wonderful endeavor. And, and he's a physician statistician who breaks down different ways to look at nutrition studies to, uh, uh, so people can see what the convincing ones and ones that, are, that aren't so convincing. But it's unfair to, to stand there with your arms folded and, and demand the same level of proof because um, food is so complex and people are so complex. But I belong to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and, uh, and as well as the Plantrition Project. And every year those organizations have meetings, they used to at least, till COVID, uh, and plant-based doctors would be coming from around the world. We have over a thousand of them this past September, uh, from Ireland and Israel and Iran and, and Peru and uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and all of them are seeing the same thing. They're all they're putting their patients on plant-based diets, and we're all seeing our patients get leaner and healthier and getting them off their medications. It's not an issue. Uh, it, it's, it's normal physiology at this point. Uh, and and to, to stand there and demand those studies. Yeah, and, and scientific theory is important, but this is such an obvious phenomenon. It's like clean drinking water versus contaminated drinking water. You see who's getting sick. Uh, you don't need to be do placebo, double blind controlled studies on, on contaminated drinking water. You can see it. And it's the same thing with the diet and lifestyle issues here. So, uh, you know, people are certainly entitled to as much solid proof as you can furnish. But the reality is what it is. These are diseases of abnormal diet. You clean up the diet, the diseases go away. Published in that prestigious medical journal called The. You know, uh, really, but I think uh, it's important to mention that we do have studies now. Like we do. Either, yeah, we have epidemiological studies that shown that people who eat a complete or predominantly plant-based diet are the most people. And then we also have randomized control studies now that have shown plant-based diets to help reverse diabetes, heart disease, cholesterol, hypertension. So yeah, like what you said, I 100% agree with, but there are some medical students who might be listening yes, to this. Are. Thank who are going to be like, we need studies, otherwise we cannot believe this. Yeah, fair That's enough, not... and they're entitled to them. But yeah, but just so I just put it in to context out, there. Yeah, for sure. I, fair enough. Absolutely. Um, so we were talking about like how when you eat a meal, different things through your bloodstream. I just want to touch on like meat-specific toxins that run through your bloodstream when you eat like a burger or steak or chicken breast, because a lot of people might want to understand what exactly is going through their body once they eat that. And a few of the things I was hoping you could touch on were like heme iron, TMAO, oxidized cholesterol, fat-soluble contaminants, and things like that. Yes, really. Um, the whole issue of eating flesh. You know, we are not carnivorous apes, no matter what the paleo folks and the keto folks try to tell us. We are, we've got fingers, not claws here. We are, we are not flesh-eating creatures. 
Um, but we have, but the like that taste of steak in your mouth and uh, biting into that burger, that hot dog. And so we, we keep the, the meat going down the gullet there. Um, well, and well, the other animals do it. Yeah, the, the lions on the African plain, they take out the old, slow, injured antelope and, uh, and, they, they, and they eat the, the entrails raw uh, and they don't, they don't cook it, they don't grill the steaks. Uh, and, and they you know, have their own biological metabolic reasons for eating the entrails and, and they're on their way there. Um, that in no way is similar or, or justifies taking a fatty piece of, of cow muscle that animals have been raised to be as fat as possible and put it on a grill uh, or under a broiler and, and at 400, 500 degrees uh, for X number of minutes to, to, to subject it to high temperature. The very act of cooking the meat cr uh, creates a host of carcinogen. You can't help but create heterocyclic amines that smear on your colon wall and give the, the red meat eaters colon cancer. But it gets into your bloodstream and it uh, does nasty things to your bone marrow and your immune system. So you're going to generate carcinogens. Um, the very act of cooking nucleic acids and proteins creates a whole host of, you know, for the biochemistry fans, there a whole host of, of aldehydes that are react, they are mutagenic. As they flow over your genes, they mess up the base pairing of genes. Well, these are genes responsible for cell uh, uh, division, uh, for uh, passing traits on to uh, other generations for tissue repair, and you injure them. They're mutagenic. Uh, well, you interfere with tissue repair, you increase cancer risk, et cetera, but you get mutagenic aldehyde just by cooking animal flesh. Uh, the, uh, uh, when you're eating meat, you're eating uh, molecules called carnitine, and uh, if you're eating eggs, you're eating choline. So what? Well, the food you eat determines the microbes that live in your gut, eat a bunch of sugar, you're going to summon up sugar-eating microbes. You eat a bunch of animal flesh, so carnitine and choline, you're going to summon up carnitine and choline-eating microbes in your gut. And the next chicken breast, the next salmon steak you put down there, those microbes are going to turn the carnitine and choline into trimethylamine that your liver then oxidizes to trimethylamine oxide, TMAO. This is a molecule from hell. This drives cholesterol into the artery walls and keeps HDL from, from transporting the cholesterol out. So these folks are writing themselves a ticket uh, for artery disease and strokes and, and MIs, and probably drives cancer growth as well. Um, the, uh, uh, there's a, the, only animals, only mammals make this, this sialic acid called NU5GC. This stuff is highly inflammatory. Uh, if you stain for it, you can find NU5GC in rheumatoid arthritic joints. You can find it in atherosclerotic coronary plaques. And NU5GC, uh, our paleo and our meat-eating friends are giving themselves a shot of NU5GC three times a day and fanning inflammation all around. And then there's endotoxin. What's endotoxin? Well, and, and even the med students and attendees, you've spent any time in the intensive care unit, uh, you've run into endotoxic shock. Uh, what is that? Comes from micro, come from bacteria, uh, and 
And here is where, as in these days of COVID, and we're more aware of slaughterhouse practices, uh, what happens in the slaughterhouse is that all animals, even organic grass-fed beef, uh, comes from the slaughterhouse. They all pass through that abattoir. Uh, and once they're killed, their, their intestinal tracts are removed. They're eviscerated. And you can't do that without the intestinal content spilling all over the, uh, the slaughterhouse floor there. And the reality is that every cutting surface in the slaughterhouse, if you take a culture tube, uh, you can culture E. coli and Salmonella and Shigella and Enterococcus and Clostridia and, uh, and, and every enteric microbe, path, pathogenic microbe you can imagine, um, is uh, off the, the cutting tables of slaughterhouse. Why is that an issue? Because every steak and chop and chicken breast uh, that's been flopped around on that cutting surface as a layer of these enteric microbes on the surface. So uh, we cook the meat. Yeah, but before that happens, that, that steak or that chop or that chicken breast is wrapped in cellophane, put in the cardboard, uh, and sent to, the, uh, uh, to, sent to the supermarket, where it sits under the ultraviolet light in the meat case, to, uh, which is there to kill bacteria, and, they, and it works. And the microbes die and they break up. Well, the cell walls of these enteric microbes released a nasty lipopolysaccharide called endotoxin. And this is bad stuff. This makes your gut leak. It releases histamine. It makes your blood clot. It releases cardiotoxins. Uh, uh, it generates free radicals. Nasty stuff that, uh, running through your bloodstream. It'll, it'll kill you. It'll cause endotoxic shock. Well, we cook the burger. Turns out that endotoxins heat stable. So cooking the burger doesn't get rid of the endotoxin. So every chicken breast and every, every burger is another. gives yourself a shot of endotoxin. So our meat-eating friends, God love them, they, you know, they don't know. But the truth is, three times a day, they're giving themselves a shot of, uh, of endotoxin and, and new 5GC and mutagenic aldehydes. You know, and carcinogenic uh, hydrocarbons uh, and TMAO, it's, it's fostering TMA production. It's a toxic brew, a meal after meal that runs through our system. Uh, and we find ourselves obese and inflamed with all these diseases. And the doctors say, etiology unknown, we're autoimmune. We don't know why the body attacks itself. Uh, there must, maybe it's a virus. And all these dodges except the elephant or the or the steer in the in the room, it's the food. But uh, they they don't want to look at that because they got to look at their own diets. They don't want to change their own diet, so they're not going to tell the patient to do it. But but that's bankrupt medicine. That that's not serving the patient uh, uh, by a long shot, or or the practice of medicine. So your generation's the hope. Um, uh, all it takes, and I tell the med students, our, our initiative is called Moving Medicine Forward, and, and uh, it's our, I found each other here. And, and I tell the students, before you order another $1,000 scan, before you order another $500 set of lab tests, stop. Ask the patient what they ate yesterday. Have them take you through their eating day. And if it's full of burgers and buffalo wings and pizzas and fast foods and even meat and eggs and dairy consumed at home, that's why they're sitting in front of you, overweight, diabetic, clogged up, and inflamed. 
Uh, but I don't know anything about nutrition. I don't get paid for it. I don't have time. I got all this little thing. You don't have to, doctor. There are professionals who will help do that counseling for you. All you got to do is recognize you're sitting in the person sitting in front of you as a dietary generated disease. Send the patient, tell the patient that well, a really healthy diet, Joe, you're going to be leaner and healthier, get you off those medicines, you're going to feel better. Send them to the plant-based dietitian. Let her do the counseling. Let her show them the videos. Let her take them shopping. Uh, let her give them some, some meal plans and let her see them back in a, in a week or two, see how it's going. Let her do the dietetic counseling. And you just see the patient back in a month and see if they're not leaner and healthier, which they will be. They're not called the dietitian and find out why, um, but that's how medicine should be practiced. The doctor just needs to recognize that there's a dietary disease uh, in that patient's body and, and enlist the professionals to help them uh, do that counseling. This is medicine of the 21st century, and I've got a slide with a provocative saying in it uh, that I've got to list all these diseases: the lupus and hypertension and atherosclerosis. And I click the slides and reversible disease. Every one of these are reversible. And then I click it one more, and I say, and the slide said, you want to heal these patients or don't you? I mean, really? Why'd you go into medicine? Why heal these people or don't you? If you want to heal them, then get real about why they're sitting in front of you. Get real about their diet. Get these folks on a whole food plant-based diet, and most of these diseases will be healed. And until you do that, then you're just treating, you're, you're just raising their statin prescription, their metformin doses, and say, come back in a month. If that's the kind of medicine you're practicing, then it's band-aid superficial symptom treatment. You're making yourself feel better. You're making the numbers look better. But these people are not getting healthier. You want to heal them? Then get real about what they're eating because that's why they're sitting in front of you. So this is a new age of nutritional medicine that we're trying to birth here. You know, it's too bad it's such a struggle. You'd think they would, such a, if there was a pill that did this, they made people leaner, lowered their blood pressure, got rid of their insulin resistance, made their choice stop. If there was a pill that did that, boy, they'd be all over prescribing that one. They'd run on pens, writing prescriptions. But it's, it's the food. It's rice and beans and greens and fruits and veggies. It's curries and soups and stews and yeah, pozzoles. Uh, that's the joyous uh, news. And, and yet our profession leaves our head scratching to be so reluctant to... Uh, uh, to adopt this. Quite, quite a time. Yeah. We're at a turn of ages here. And that's why you folks give me hope. Yeah. Uh, well, is, you are say, leading the movement. So this I is so that. important. Oh, yes. This is so important for medical students to hear. So we're just so happy you're like spreading this message because it's so important. And I love that you touched on like you touched on so many specific mechanisms because as medical students, a lot of us like mechanisms. We like to know why things happen. And you touched on them like the NOI5GC, the endotoxins and all that. Um, but it's also important to remember it's the food as a whole. It's like, it's, it's not just one specific thing. It's like food's a package deal. I think Dr. Gregor likes to say that. Um, so it's like the balance are you're either choosing foods that cause disease or you're choosing foods that foster health and you put it so beautifully. I would just like to ask oh. one, I was going to say one follow-up question that we get from a lot of medical students is like, what about fish? Is fish included in all these like, Harmful, yeah, right. adverse yeah. consequences. Uh, again, um, when it comes to eating fish, uh, less is more. That's for sure. 
Uh, it's often the last piece of flesh foods to leave the diet. Uh, but seriously, uh, we've been treating the oceans like sewers. Um, the most every decent sized fish you pull out of the water has measurable levels of organic mercury and pesticides and herbicides and dioxins. It's um, the, the, these toxins bioconcentrate in the fish flesh. You look at a piece of salmon, you know, where's that salmon bed? You know, uh, what uh, sewage outfalls they've been hanging out by. Uh, and uh, for, so for the, for the health hazards that it presents, I, I couldn't feel comfortable eating the, the fish. Plus, we're strip mining the oceans. We are clear-cutting the oceans like the logging companies do on land. We are doing that to the ocean with these massive trawling nets 10 miles wide. And for every piece of the fish on the plate, there's dozens and dozens of seabirds drown on, on long lines. There's, and the nets are turtles and whales and dolphins and sharks. And you know, all these poor animals get scooped up there, just produce that uh, omega-3-containing fish flesh. Um, it's, it's, it's bizarre and unnecessary. The fish don't make omega-3 fats. Uh, those are made by algae floating in the ocean. The fish swallow the algae. And that's where the omega-3s come from. And we can get those same omega-3s uh, in flax seeds and, uh, and hemp seeds and chia seeds and uh, even algae-derived DHA supplements if you want. There's just no reason to eat flesh. It's strictly a taste thing. Uh, and so uh, the sooner we uh, uh, stop eating it, the better. So I suggest that we let the fish off the hook. Yeah, we've used, it's come down to the fact, yes, it's been, you know, since time began, but we've, here in the 21st century, in the year 2020, we've used fishing up, we've used it up, yeah, and it's time to turn the page, let the oceans heal already, we've used fishing up. We've used meat production on land, and we used it up. It's time to let the land heal, and let our bodies heal. Now, whatever its role it served in history, turn that page. We used to do lots of things in history. We used to harpoon whales. So we used to buy and sell black people in my country. We used to do lots of things uh, that you think about it now. I say, oh my God, I can't believe we did that. Well, flesh, you know, industrial scale animal production and eating animal flesh three times, that has to be one of those things that we look at and say, I can't believe we did that. Look at the cost to ourselves, to the animals, to the earth. Uh, who close that chapter, you know, and, and it's a joyous thing. The, the people get lean and healthy. The food is delicious because when you stop eating animals and take out all those toxins, what do you substitute? All these salads and soups and greens at every meal flood your tissues with these phytonutrients, these stabilizing molecules that are antioxidants and they quench free radicals and they promote tissue repair. Uh, they help the DNA repair itself. Uh, it's, the, it's the truth of, of eating whole plant foods. And uh, your point about whole foods are really important. You know, the, uh, a vitamin tablet will never come close to what's in a leaf of lettuce or a chunk of carrot. Uh, eat the whole foods. There's so many thousands of nutrients that interact in millions of ways. Uh, we, we, need, uh, we need whole foods in your diet. And, and that means eating foods that you could recognize if it was growing in the garden. Oh, there's a tomato, there's a cucumber, there's a green bean. That's the food you want to eat, not edible food-like substances out of brightly colored packages and boxes. That's not food.
Yeah, you had earlier talked about animal fats. So I was hoping you could also now discuss plant fats and just contrast it to because people listening might not know the difference. And also, I also wanted you to touch on the protein craze we have right now. Like everyone is so protein focused and they eat so much protein, but don't understand the negative consequences of all the protein that they're eating. Right. So those are very profound and perspicacious questions there, very perceptive. Um, the, uh, we, I'm not against fats. We need fats. It's an essential nutrient. Your skin oils are made of fat. Your brain draft is fat. Your hormones are made of fat. God, it needs fat every day. Uh, the point is the plant kingdom supplies the fats that we need, uh, but the plea is to get them out of whole plant foods, get them out of olives and avocados and and uh, hemp seeds and uh, get those uh, fats, uh, coconut, etc., out of the whole coconut, not coconut oil. Um, but get your fats out of plant foods. And, and generally, plant fats are lighter and uh, less likely to cause artery damage and uh, set off malignancies, etc., that uh, or set off inflammation the way saturated animal fats can do. So in general, uh, the plant world, again, meets our needs. Now, I've never seen a gorilla in the office uh, complaining of a, a fat deficiency or protein deficiency. They know what to eat. It's in the plant foods that they're eating, and, and that's the point. Those same plant foods uh, will supply us. Uh, a handful, a small handful of nuts or seeds every day, I think is a wonderful thing. Uh, there's many studies showing that it's beneficial. That doesn't mean sitting in front of the TV with a five-pound bag of cashews and shoveling them in uh, by the handful between commercials uh, it means, uh, you know, one small handful of nuts, turn off the TV, eat them one at a time, become a conscious eater of nuts. And it's a wonderful uh, uh, addition to the diet and uh, supplies essential fats that we need, as opposed to the heavy animal fats that injure our arteries and set off inflammation, make us obese, uh, etc. Uh, the protein, protein, protein. Where are you going to get your protein? Uh, and again, I've never had a buffalo or a giraffe in the office saying, Dad, well, I'm protein deficient. The, the, I'm implying that the biggest animals on the planet, elephants and buffaloes and giraffes, grow to thousands of pounds of mammalian muscle without ever eating cheeseburgers or pepperoni pieces. The, the protein is in the grains and the grasses and the nuts and the seeds. Uh, that those animals are eating and that, that we're eating. Uh, and uh, everything has protein in, in a whole food plant-based diet uh, as opposed to sugary snacks. If it's really, if it grew out of the ground, it's got plenty of protein in it. And, uh, and as you're implying, it's turning out, and the bodybuilders don't want to hear this, but there's such a thing as too much protein. Protein is tough stuff to, to, for your body to process in concentrated amounts. Um, uh, these, including these vegan protein powders, but by and large, big steaks and big fish fillets, um, all that protein, all those amino acids slam into your kidneys. Uh, they, uh, uh, they're, they're hard for the kidneys to process. The kidneys go into a gear of hyperfiltration, and it's believed that's one of the steps that uh, leads to people with all this low-grade chronic kidney failure. It's protein toxicity from the protein, 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 the constant meat meals. I mean, really, the, the 
the, the tigers in the rainforest don't eat meat three times a day. You know, uh, no other animal does this, but we bombard our, uh, our, our kidneys with protein. And very importantly, if you remember the anatomy and your portal venous system, etc., you eat that steak and the, the proteins, uh, the amino acids are disassembled and they're all absorbed. And where do they go? They ride the portal venal express right up into the liver. And boom, suddenly the liver is flooded with all these amino acids. What is the liver going to do? It's going to respond. And how? It's going to put out a gush of a hormone called insulin-like growth factor 1, IGF-1. This is one of the most potent growth-promoting factors in the body. It's, uh, it's been said, you know, it's like you're giving a, a child a, a box full of Tinker Toy parts. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to build something. And our body does it. You flood the liver with amino acids, it's going to put out IGF-1. And the message to that is grow, grow, grow tissue. And this is a great mechanism if when you're a young child and your body's growing, you want lots of IGF-1. But if you're a grown woman with a breast lump, if you're a grown guy with a big prostate, maybe a little early prostate cancer there, the last thing you want is a big gush of IGF-1 from your liver fanning growth uh, throughout the body. And we get the cancers of prostates and breasts and colons and say, oh, how did this happen? Well, you're waving the red cape in front of the bull here. It's going to charge, you know. You keep fanning those fires with all the building blocks. And the body's going to respond and, uh, and get in a pro-growth uh, state, which uh, at age 50 or 60, that's not the state you want to be in. And so... Uh, so also protein, you know, it's in the rice, it's in the beans, it's in the greens, it's in the lentils. You know, you have a scoop of lentil stew, we have a hummus sandwich, uh, you have a bean burrito, you have something with these protein-rich foods, uh, you know, every day or two. And, and the protein will take care of itself. Eat those whole foods and no one's going to wind up protein deficient, guarantee it. Uh, the bodybuilders may need a little bit more, but it's dangerous stuff. And go to the website of the vegan bodybuilders. Go to Robert Cheek's website if you're if you're really into that world. But I don't think it's a healthy thing to be creating these massive muscles, these huge amounts of protein. I think these guys die earlier from cancers if you follow them along. So, so eat the food as it grew out of the ground, and they'll stay out of the clutches of people like us. All right. So we don't have to worry about protein. That's great. Um, no. Another question sometimes we get is people are concerned, like if they're eating so many fruits, so many vegetables, is the, are the pesticides and the herbicides a concern? Like should patients be focusing on organic produce or what are your thoughts on this? Uh, welcome to the 21st century. That's a profound question now. And uh, in the space of my lifetime, since the 60s and 70s and 80s, in the space of my medical practice, I was born in 47, certainly in the space of my time, it was all organic produce back then, but the pesticide revolution happened, and now our, our foods are drenched in them. So what do you do? Um, as you mentioned, uh, at the risk of being accused of being elitist or whatever. Um, yes, organic produce, if you can buy the food that's not been sprayed with these herbicides and pesticides, absolutely, you want to eat that. Not only do you want to buy it and consume it, but you want to pay those organic farmers who are taking care of the land and not using the stock. Support those people. We've got nothing better to do with our, with our money. Um, 
Now that said, and we'll be well, it's expensive. Yeah, it is it's more expensive. But if you're not spending money on T-bone steaks and Gruyere cheese and 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 wild caught salmon, if you you got money, uh, you got an extra excuse me, an extra buck to buy the organic kale uh, or the or the non-sprayed tomatoes. So uh, I definitely think organic is best and more and more so if you could possibly afford it. That said, if I'm out in a restaurant and uh, they bring a salad, and I know it's not an organic salad, I know there must be some pesticides uh, on the lettuce or whatever, um, I won't not eat the salad because it's not organic. I'll eat the salad because I really believe that the benefit I'm going to get from that flood of phytonutrients uh, and, uh, and the vitamins, minerals, etc far outweighs the tiny bit of pesticide I'm going to get from that one particular salad. Uh, I think in the cost-benefit analysis, the benefit way outweighs the, the risk there. So I'll do that, but it's a sign of, of how toxic our world's becoming. And whatever you can do to support those organic farmers, grow it yourself in the backyard if you can, or in a window box. Um, but whatever we can do to, to make organic produce, either buy it or grow it yourself, uh, is definitely worthwhile. So organic's where it's at if you can. That's okay. Organic. Um, and I think what else might be useful for listeners is I think the Environmental Working Group has a list of their dirty dozen. So I know for myself, I can't afford to buy everything organic, but a lot of the time I try and buy the first couple foods on that list, which is I think spinach and strawberries this year. So I try and buy those organic. So um, another question that we kind of often get from medical students here is a lot of, there's a lot of soy and a lot of phytoestrogens in a plant-based diet. And there's a huge like there's the huge idea that this can contribute to breast cancer and that breast cancer patients should stay away from soy. What are, what would you say to people that are worried about that? Uh, it's, you know, it's an exercise in how distorted the social media can make things and people with, uh, with uh, ulterior motives can, uh, can shape things. Uh, I remember uh, back in the mid-1990s, uh, meat sales were starting to go down, soy products and soy analogs were showing up, the soy hot dogs and soy ice creams, and uh, the meat and the dairy folks got pretty upset about this and uh, unleashed the tsunami of anti-soy I have to call it, you know, propaganda. Oh, phytoestrogens in soy is like being on birth control pill. It's uh, uh, it's gonna you know, grow man boobs. It's gonna turn your son gay if he eats tempeh, and uh, all these things that uh, that got unleashed and put into the public's head, and it still echoes today in that very question that you asked me. Uh, oh, it's gonna, you know, got phytoestrogens. You know, the breast cancer shouldn't eat this. Gonna make your breast cancer grow. Actually, don't pay attention to what science says, just, just scare people with it. The truth is, it turns out to be just the opposite. It turns out uh, that the, the phytoestrogen, the, uh, the diazine uh, particularly, um, it occupies, the, there's two types of receptor sites on the breast cancer cells. Uh, the, the type 1 receptors inhibits cancer growth and, and cell division. The type 2 promotes the growth. Well, it turns out that the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, 
phytoestrogens from the soy um, block the receptor that promotes the growth. It turns out that the women who consume soy products have a lower incidence of breast cancer. And if they do have a breast cancer, it grows more slowly if they're eating soy. They live longer by eating the soy. It's just the opposite of what this shows. Um, so as far as the breast cancer issue, not an issue, not an issue. Now, as you know from toxicology studies, the dose makes the poison. And nobody's saying that you want to drink two quarts of soy milk a day and put a half a pound of tofu into every, uh, every stir fry, etc. But there's so many good things in soy, especially in the more whole form, in the edamame beans and in the tempeh that you crumble up and put into your spaghetti sauce. Now, there's so many benefits to that. Lowers cholesterol, uh, anti-inflammatory on so many levels. Soy belongs in our diet, but uh, that's all things in moderation, as they say. Yeah. The, the study I think the industry used had people eating, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think like 20 servings of soy. So it, it was just an insane study that was just like unfair because 20 servings of anything is not going to be good. So if you just eat one to two servings a day, completely fair. Um, could you just elaborate more on the estrogen part of this? Because a lot of people focus so much on phytoestrogens and are too scared to eat tofu, but then are completely okay drinking a cup of milk and then eating cheese and yogurt every day that has real estrogen. Oh, such a powerful, important question. You're, you are very wise uh, um, to bring this up because um, it's a huge issue. If I turn the clock back to the 1950s, when I was a boy on my uncle's farm, when a cow would become fertile, we would lock her up in the stanchion, uh, and we would call badger breeders, and the guy would come out, uh, and he'd put a big, long gauntlet, rubber glove up to his shoulder, uh, and uh, grease it up, and thrust his arm into the cow's rectum, all the way up to his shoulder. No cow like this, I'll tell you. And through the through the rectal wall, could feel the cow's cervix. And so he would grab the, the cow's cervix through the rectal wall, now with the rectal arm. And then with his other hand, he'd reach down into his case and pull out a big, long tube of bull semen and ram it into her vagina you know, all the way up and guide it into the, through the cervix. And then when it was in there, he would give a squirt, a squeeze, and a squirt of bull semen would come out. The cow would be uh, inseminated and conceive. Uh, no cow like that. There's their words for, for that kind of forceful insemination. I won't use it in this discussion. Uh, but the cow then gets pregnant. Uh, and um, if she had been lactating, she stops lactating. She dries up. Uh, and, my, and there's a good reason for this. Uh, pregnant mammals don't, generally don't lactate. Uh, and um, and my uncle would pull out his notebook, well, bossy number 17. She won't give milk again until she ever has her calf in the spring. And that's just the way it was. There's nothing you do about it. Cows get pregnant, they dry up the, the milk production. Uh, well, we had, four, we milked 49 cows on our little farm. Today's modern dairy installations, they're milking 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 cows at a time. They can't afford to have their best milkers go offline for nine months while they're carrying a calf. I can't make a profit that way. So they genetically modified the cows now. And so today's dairy cows will give milk, even though they're pregnant with their next calf, all the way through the next pregnancy, they're still sucking 
uh, milk off these animals. Well, as you'll learn when you go on obstetric service, when a woman is pregnant, her body is saturated with estrogens. Everything is full of estrogens. Her hair grows beautifully, her breasts get big, the ears get big, uh, and it comes out in the milk. They're, 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 the milk of a woman is, is full of estrogens. Well, think of that poor cow. She's pregnant, and they're sucking milk. Her milk is full of estrogens. Uh, and the studies showed this. You give milk to um, these infants uh, to, uh, to young children. Their testosterone levels fall. They're, uh, they're, uh, within 15 minutes of, of a, a child drinking a glass of milk, their urine is pouring with estradiol, um, uh, pregnant diol, progesterone, uh, estriol, estrone. These are active mammalian estrogens. These are not the puny little phytoestrogens in soy. These are official mammalian estrogens. And, 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 the, and the research there, uh, sexual maturation could be affected by, uh, uh, by intake of cow's milk. You think? Why are our little girls going through puberty at age eight and nine and ten? Could it have something to do with that river of milk and cheese and ice cream and yogurt that are shoving down their mouth every day for their bones, full of cow estrogens? Uh, get your mammograms, ladies. Why do Canadian women get all these breast lumps? That natural. You go to rural China, women don't get breast lumps. You go to rural Vietnam, women don't get breast lumps yet. Wait till the dairy industry gets over there. They will. But, um, but the, the estrogens in the cow's milk fans the, the estrogen-sensitive tissue in the breast. Men do get man boobs from drinking too much, consuming dairy products with all this active estrogen. And estrogens make the prostate gland unstable. The more dairy products a boy eats before age 10, the higher his risk of prostate cancer when he's a full adult man. Um, it's for baby calves. It's full of estrogens. And, and there are people who are obsessive. Oh, the soy has got phytoestrogens. But meanwhile, have, some, have a milkshake, have some, some cheese, and have yogurt and, and ice cream full of these active estrogens. And, and it blows us up. People becoming more bovine with all this, uh, all this bovine intake material. So, um, so you asked a profound question compared to, um, to the active mammalian estrogen in, in honestly goodness, cow's milk, um, what's in the phytoestrogen in soy are, aren't even in the same league. We have no more need for the milk of a cow than we do the milk of a moose or the milk of a giraffe. Would you pour rat milk on your cereal? Would, would you pour dog milk on your cereal? What is we have cow's milk, and now the cows are all pregnant. It's a bizarre thing to do, especially with all these lovely plant-based milks now. Go with the rice milk and the hemp milk and the oat milk and the almond milk. Much, much healthier for you, no doubt. Yeah, I love how you explain it. Because a lot of people don't even realize that phytoestrogens, I believe, are like a thousand times stronger than estrogen. And then yet they're scared of phytoestrogens that are completely okay with estrogen. So I have a profound question for you as a medical okay. student. Um, because this is a question that Cass and I get a lot every time we talk about diet to our colleagues. They would go, would patients actually follow this? It seems like a lot to ask from a patient to change their entire life around. It's just easier to give them a statin or, uh, uh, you know, a medication for whatever they're, they have. 
Yes, and of course, you put your finger on one of the real cruxes of Western medicine. We've, we've painted ourselves into this corner where people want to eat their salty, sugary, fatty foods. They want to just quickly get that instant cure. You mean the pill docs, like go back and eat more pizzas and more burgers. Uh, and all the Western medicine is built around this, this model. And, and it's so disheartening when I was doing cardiac anesthesia, the, you did, the surgeon sweats for seven hours during a four-muscle bypass and an aneurysm repair, and, and the patient's obese and diabetic, they get a wound infection, they get a, a post-operative pneumonia, they throw a pulmonary embolus, they get a woundy hisses. Um, after eight weeks in the ICU, they finally get discharged, they limp out of the hospital, uh, to do what? To head to the pizza place, to head to the burger place, and start eating more of this stuff again. And they wind up on the table for a redo because their graphs are all clogged up. Gee, how did that happen? And it's it's bizarre for our, what, what we've, uh, and yet this is normal. I'm, I can eat what I want. Yeah, but look at the reality of this. And, and for the simple expedient of choosing the bean chili instead of the beef chili would change everything. And yet we're caught on this bizarre, expensive, tragic merry-go-round. So how do we get off of it? Um, yes, we're asking to change something very primordial. The, our food, it's easier to talk to someone about a sex change operation than a dietary change. Um, and because it's the food our mothers gave us, it's the comfort food. It's that, uh, the, the sloppy joe on a winter's day. And we, we, we get these primordial associations and memories. And, and don't take my blue blanket away. Don't take my mommy away. Don't take my comfort food away. Uh, and, and, and we, we've really become hooked on the, on the sensation of biting into that, that burger and the hot dog, etc. And this is what food has become. Um, so how do you break through that? Um, it's not easy, and a skilled counselor is worth everything. And there are food coaches and skilled dietitians, and they should be welcomed onto the team. Uh, because a lot is involved. You're asking the person to swim against their social stream. They may have a spouse that's not into this. They're afraid of what the guys at work are going to say about this. Their, their, their daughter-in-law, who's paleo, knows everything, and she's going to give them uh, what for when, when, he, when he thinks about changing his diet. Meanwhile, the guy's got angina. He's having TIAs. He can't walk across the room without taking nitroglycerin. And, and people are telling down that, that vegetarian diet dangerous. Are you kidding? Look, look at what the man's eating himself into. So how do you start? Um, the old song, accentuate the positive, um, uh, is, is important. As Dr. Dean Ornish tells us, fear is not a, a, a sustainable motivator. Uh, you can scare somebody into a healthier diet for a couple of weeks. But as the months go by and years go by, um, if there's not support at home, they don't really understand why they're doing it. They're, they're going to fall off the wagon. They're going to relapse. Um, so you, so there's a whole art and a whole skill. You've got to get the whole family involved. Um, how devoted is the wife? Or if it is the wife, is the patient, how devoted is the husband? What are they willing to do? And a taste is worth a thousand words. Bless our colleagues in culinary medicine. You can put a, a piece of, a spoonful of just delicious uh, Indian curry or a tofu lasagna into the guy's mouth, and he says, oh, that was, oh, I could eat that. Oh, if that's healthy food, I could eat that. 
man, you change their life. A taste is worth a thousand words. So I'm a big fan of, uh, of taste demonstrations, of bringing patients into, the, into your office after hours. Instead of a hot plate in a blender, show them how to make a salad dressing, show them how to, uh, to, uh, to, to heat up a can of beans or whatever, but just start putting the food in their mouth and, and emphasize how good they're going to feel. They're so tired of being fed and lugging around that extra 80 pounds to be lean, to be, would you like to be offered pills? Would you like to be able to get an erection again? Would you like to not strain having a bowel movement again? We want that acne to clear up. We'd like to stop wheezing. Would you like to, uh, to get, uh, have those skin ulcers clear up? Uh, and focus on, it's the food, it's the food. Let's run healthy food nutrients through that skin, those arteries, that colon, and watch what happens. And you be, there's no substitute for a primary care physician who cares and who's cheering them on. Let me see a bag here next week. Let me see a bag in two weeks. Keep a little food diary. Let, let me know what you're really eating. Let me know what worked and what didn't. Uh, someone who, and if the, if the patient knows I've got to face the doc in two weeks, uh, it, it's highly motivating. And there comes a point where they look in the mirror and man, they are leaner and they're, and they're not taking those pills and they're sh passing bowel movements better and they feel better. And at that point, you've hopefully won the game. They, the, sometimes they go back and they're always so sorry when they do. But um, it's, a, it's a struggle. It's one of the hardest uh, things to do. But the payoff is so great. You save people's lives uh, with this. You save them from having a stroke. Yeah, because you get the attitudes uh, among the hemate. Well, I get my heart attack and die. I just get my I doc, I'd rather eat what I got to eat for as long as I'm here. I get my heart attack and die. Uh, so I got to die something, doc, you know, with this cavalier issue, uh, attitude. But as physicians, we know that Mother Nature's got, got some tricks up her sleeves. And one of the worst things in medicine is to get your, you get your stroke and you don't die. And, and you spend your next 30 years in a wheelchair drooling with some pretty nurse wiping your ass because you can't reach back there with one hand uh, to clean yourself. Life gets a whole lot of not fun at that point. Um, uh, it knocks hell out of the mirror. Not very romantic. You have, you have, you have your wife clean the, the, the fecal smear off your backside twice a day. Um, it's not a matter of getting my heart attack and die. Uh, or you get your heart attack, but you don't die. But you lose 40%, 60% of your myocardium, you get winded walking out to the mailbox, you become a cardiac cripple. Mm, not so much fun. And um, so you as the physician, you have to advocate that they, they don't know what's waiting for them. So focus on how good they're going to feel, how delicious the food is, how to order in a restaurant. There are, there are health coaches who will do this for them. And, and they've got nothing better to do with their pennies. Uh, but hopefully your medical system is more foresightful than ours is. And uh, it'll help, help pay for the, this auxiliary help. But it, it's a struggle. It's the toughest one in medicine. But it, it's worth every, uh, every ounce of, of energy you can put towards it. The patients are worth it. Well, thank you so much for that. I hope that inspires some of the medical students listening. And, and by I'd the like... way, you never, you <laughs> never know who the people you never think are going to change. There, you never know who hears what, and they always they want to surprise you. This guy who was you didn't think he was listening or he couldn't care less comes back three months later and leaner. I heard what you said, Doc. You never know. Sometimes you so never always know. worth making the effort. 
I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just I was just going to emphasize how you said before, we at least owe our patients the information, we should never withhold information. And it's their choice whether they want to follow through with it or not. But at least we did our part. Absolutely. Um, I just have one. I know we need to be super respectful of your time here. But just maybe one question. What if someone wants to if someone is listening, and they want to find a plant based physician, um, to maybe help them reverse some of their diseases, where would you recommend they start? If they're looking for someone oh to help them. Very important. Um, someday soon, they'll all be plant-based physicians and it won't <laughs> be an issue from my lips to God's ears. Um, so what to do? The, um, uh, there are now some websites. If people go to plantbaseddoctors.org, plantbaseddoctors.org, or plantbaseddocs.com, and click on your city there on the map, uh, you'll find uh, uh, plant-based physicians. Um, nowadays, in this era of telemedicine, uh, most of this stuff can be done over a telemedicine consultation. Um, I work for a telemedicine company, if you look at and we do, and the name of our company is Plant-Based Telehealth. We do plant-based telehealth uh, consultations, so, so call us. Um, but also, really, it's okay if your doctor's not plant-based. The truth is, as you get healthier, you're gonna be seeing her less and less often. And all you really need from that, if you're on a bunch of pills, you don't, don't get into a thing with it. Just say, doc, I'm eating healthier, probably gonna lose some weight. Will you work with me in case we need to reduce the dosage of my diabetic pills or my blood pressure pills? Uh, enlist them onto your team and work with them. And not only will you, you accomplish your goal safety, you'll teach your doctor something. And, uh, and, and hopefully, it's too seldom, uh, you know, the, the doctors will say, what did you do? Yeah, boy, I want to share this with my other patients. That was really wonderful change you went through. Um, so, you know, that's the best possible uh, outcome. Too often, uh, the patients go through this wonderful transformation. I said, did your patient, did your doctor say anything? No, I never didn't say anything. Just, you know, if he got angry at me and threw me out of the office. Yeah. If that's the case, then find a different doctor. Find someone who at least is neutral, if not supportive. You deserve that. Uh, but meanwhile, you get on, it's the food. Get on with what you need to get on and enlist your doctor as an ally uh, to help reduce your medications because you're going to need less and less of them. But if you can find a real plant-based doctor, all the best. But it's not, it's not essential by a long shot. No, for sure. I think there are um, more plant-based doctors in the U.S. than Canada. But like you said, you know, we should as patients, like whoever is a patient, should at least try to make changes themselves and let the doctor know they are making certain changes, even if the doctor is not on board. Maybe once the doctor sees the changes, they may be impressed, or at least they can monitor, most importantly. Like you want to make sure your doctor is monitoring so you don't become hypotensive or hypoglycemic. So it's very important not to do this on your own. Um, so we have three questions that we ask every guest uh, before we finish the episode. So we're hoping to ask you those as well. The first one is, what is your favorite plant-based meal? My favorite plant-based meal? Uh, my wife makes a dynamite Buddha bowl and uh, she'll, uh, uh, we have these lovely wooden bowls there. She'll put it up a layer of quinoa on the bottom there, a uh, packet full of kale leaves. Uh, uh, she makes up a uh, wonderful 
uh, potpourri of uh, green yellow vegetable, throw those in there with a with a tahini sauce, and uh, that's a meal for me, man. Give me a salad and a Buddha bowl, and I'm a, I'm a happy guy. Uh, and and uh, though I've, I'm enjoying eating navel oranges in the morning, I'm, I'm enjoying that too as well. But uh, but it's for Buddha bowl. It's uh, right up there on my list. Sounds delicious. Um, our second question here is: What is one kitchen item you wouldn't be able to live without? One one what item? Sorry, kitchen item. A kitchen item. Oh, good sharp knife. Uh, I love sharp blades. We've got some good knife sharpener. I like them razor sharp, and uh, and so uh, I want uh, I want a good set of knives there as far as my kitchen goes. And you veggies. And a Nutribullet. Yes, my <laughs> wife tells me uh, the Nutribullet <laughs> is so great for instant uh, smoothies yeah. and gravies. Oh, it's a great tool. So yes, thank you for Nutribullet. Yes. And yeah, good Not knife and a Nutribullet. Love it. Um, what is one piece of advice or takeaway you would like to leave um, people listening to this episode? One piece of advice, one takeaway for what? I'm sorry, I'm having trouble with my hair. Oh, no worries. Uh, what is one piece of advice or takeaway you would like to leave for our listeners? For your listeners. There's no way to overestimate the importance of evolving our diets as individuals and as a species to plant whole food, plant-based food stream. Uh, everything will get better. We will get healthier as people. Most of these diseases go away. We will function better. There'll be money without the, all the trillions we're spending on healthcare. There'll be money to fix the roads and, and put internet in everybody's houses, send the kids to college. The, the, we would become a wealthy society and the earth would heal. The four, we need so much less land to grow plant-based meals compared to animal foods that the forests would come back and the eroding soils would stabilize and the waters would run pure again and the carbon dioxide would be absorbed out of the air the, into the trees. The greenhouse effects would start to reverse. Uh, we would have a sustainable planet to hand to our children. Um, every meal matters. Your body is never not looking. The animals are never not looking. The earth is never not looking. I don't know how much more serious we can make this, but it's a joyous thing. It's, it's ordering the, 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 the veggie curry instead of the chicken curry. You know, it's, it's not that huge a sacrifice, but it makes all the difference in the world, especially to that chicken, I suppose. But seriously. Um, and the time is running out. The ice caps are melting. The, the greenhouse gases are going through the roof. Uh, the cities are flooding. And the only thing that's going to make any difference is a global change to a plant-based diet. So uh, it's, not, it's no longer a social nicety or a fad or a, I'm doing vegan now. Uh, if, if we want to a livable planet, you, you want to stay out of the clutches of people like us. Uh, you don't want to live your life as a professional patient. Um, you, know, you want to be uh, at age 95 out walking the hills with your great-grandchildren enjoying the, the beautiful earth. You don't want to, you want to be tangled up with surgeons and internists and cardiologists. Um, so it's the ticket to health, it's the ticket to happiness. And, and every meal matters. Your arteries know what you eat, your prostate knows, your liver knows, your brain knows. Uh, you want to avoid Alzheimer's. So what the message that your colleagues here are giving you, are, uh, there, there couldn't be a more uh, important one, a more vital one in the literal term, vital life 
uh, life-affirming message uh, than this. So, um, so it's beyond social nicety. Eat, eat that kale and be grateful uh, for all the good things it's doing inside of you and outside of you and all the suffering that isn't happening because you're choosing the kale instead of the chicken there. So time for us to, to heal our hearts and the world and our futures and plant-based diets are where it's at. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Clapper. We were honored to have you on our show today. If our listeners would like to learn more about you, or perhaps you've inspired a medical student that's listening, where can they find out more about the work you're doing? Right. I go to my website, drclapper.com, and it's all spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-K-L-A-P-E-R, one P and Clapper. Uh, and you're, there you'll see our Moving Medicine Forward uh, initiative and, and all sorts of uh, Q&As and all sorts of things. So go to drclapper.com. Thank you for asking us. And thank you for doing uh, this event. Uh, the, the name of the game is education. The name of the game is turning on the lights in your colleagues' heads. The name of the game uh, is, is increasing social acceptance of this way of eating. And, and this kind of podcast helps that, that transition happen. So I'm very grateful for you to uh, invite me on to uh, help get this very important word out. Keep being a great example. You both look great. You're great examples. And keep spreading this word lovingly but effectively because there's nothing more important that we can do. Well, thank you, Dr. Clapper. We really appreciate that. We actually had a lot more topics to discuss with you, especially your Crew North Health Center and how you help patients with the extended water fast thing. So we're going to have to bring you back to do an episode. Yeah, have to bring me back. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. We, we want to do an episode yeah. just on that, focus on how fasting works and how you use it as a modality to help patients um, get better, feel better, lose weight. So we're going to do that completely on its own. Um, but thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, if I may say, if you want to learn how to use plant-based nutrition clinically, um, I'm starting a master class in July called Master Class in Plant-Based Clinical Nutrition. And we'll show you how to do how you deal with your diabetic patients, your hypertensive patients, and your colitis patients, etc. So, um, so uh, uh, next month in July. Uh, Google uh, uh, Dr. Clapper's course for plant-based clinical medicine uh, and clinical nutrition, and uh, and you'll learn exactly what we do at True North and how to use plant-based nutrition to heal your patients. So thanks for the reminder. Uh, we're taking. Well, I'm giving a master class in that very subject. I hope you'll join me there. That's yeah, super thank exciting. you so much. We'll I check think it a out. lot of medical students are going to be interested in that. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much once again for being on our show, and I'm pretty sure our listeners are going to love this episode and we're excited to bring you back to discuss fasting in the second one and thank well, you for thank what you all I'm I was sorry, gonna say Jess. I was gonna say thank you so much for what you're doing and perhaps one day we can bring you to the um our university oh it'd be wonderful thank you so much uh keep getting the word out and uh we'll make this a better world we got a lot of healing to do uh but for folks like you uh, we'll we'll succeed so all the best to you and your listeners bye-bye Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the Plant Prescription Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it and hopefully this inspires you to take steps towards making changes so you live a longer, happier, and healthier life. You can also follow us on Instagram where we share nutrition, health, and fitness content along with recipes. Our Instagram handles can be found in the description of this episode. Please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss on any upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed this, We would love it if you left us a positive review and a 5-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Please also make sure to share this with any family or friends who may benefit. Thank you so much for listening. Also, be sure to eat plenty of plants and see you next week.